The Border Gateway Protocol, better known as BGP. It's what runs the internet. It's using a lot of large data centers today, and it's on this network collective. Today we have with us returning guests, Russ White and Nick Russo, distinguished guests, I might add. Uh, gentlemen, welcome back. Good to see you again. How was your Thanksgiving? It was very thankful. I feel <laughs> <Okay>. bad. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, I'm still in the food coma, Phil. You're still in the food coma? That was like four days ago, man. How much turkey did you eat in one sitting? Oh, uh, it it's been over the past four days. Oh, is that right? <laughs> You guys do the turkey soup and the turkey salad and the turkey sandwiches with a little bit of tomato on it, like me. Definitely the sandwiches. I don't know about the soup, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you get to the sandwich say, point, the rest of it goes away. <laughs> yeah. Good. Glad to hear. Well, uh, today we're embarking on a three-part series diving deep into BGP. So we're real excited about that. Um, so before we do, Nick, I'm going to throw you a little softball here. In you know, 30 seconds, whatever you need, can you give us a quick overview of what BGP is? Sure. So I think I think I would describe BGP in just a couple bullet points. Um, we think about BGP as a protocol and what it's meant to do. And I think Russell probably described this in great detail uh, from an abstraction perspective about how we use it to apply policy. But I'm just going to start with even more basic things and say we use BGP to connect typically uh, independent organizations together. That doesn't mean it can't be used within an organization. But generally, when you think about BGP, you talk about interconnecting two things that are otherwise independent. Um, built primarily for policy separation. And by that, I mean, you get a lot of flexibility for ingress and routing, which we'll talk about more in the next show. Um, the topologies for BGP are also very flexible. That's gonna be the focus of what we discussed today as well. Um, the current version is BGP version four. It's gone through a number of iterations over the past several decades. Um, BGP v4 is very extendable, lots of different address families, which we'll discuss today uh, as well. Okay, great. Thanks. So let's dive into the terminology then. What are some important terms that uh, you gentlemen and well, all of us here uh, need, to, need to think about, need to be familiar with? So well, one thing yeah. that's maddening is ahead, people Russ. call BGP neighbors neighbors. They're not okay. neighbors. Well, I'm making a note. I'm not. I'm, I'm making a note, not because I'm going to avoid it, but because every time I talk about a, uh, a peer, it's going to be neighbor. That's it. That's it. Yeah, they're peers, they're not neighbors. And uh, it's called a peering session. Well, Nick has in the show notes that they're called neighbors. I'm going to, we'll, we'll take Differentiate <laughs> for us. <laughs> Help us understand what's the difference yeah, between so a peer and a neighbor. The nuance, why, why does it matter? Well, neighbors typically mean auto-discovered. So I guess if you're mm -hmm. using some version of BGP that does auto-discovery, you would call it a neighbor. But uh, a peer, and, and the other thing neighbors kind of imply is you're both connected to the same physical link. You're on the same broadcast link. Uh, BGP obviously has multi-hop capabilities. In fact, we often peer from loopback to loopback. So we're actually using um, IP reachability to get to our BGP peer. So it's not really a neighbor because it's not really next to you necessarily. It could be multiple hops away. And it's not something you've already discovered. It's something that you've configured. So we, we have this habit of calling them neighbors, but in reality, they're peers, but, and that's kind of the differential. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, here, the two speakers are often called peers or neighbors. So oh, remember is. in logic in eighth grade math, when you have an or statement and either one is correct, 
So Nick is not wrong here. And I think he was just—he was just trying to 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 strike you out. <laughs> but he's wrong. I do, I do agree with his logic. It, yeah, when we think yeah. of neighbor, we think of neighbor. We think of geographically located things. And, and Russ is making the point that geographic location, whether it be logic location, like on a land segment, or even in in the same geography, is totally not uh, not a requirement for BGP. No. Yeah. Cool. So then the next thing you have is a network layer reachability information, the NLRI. So a lot of people get confused about this because there's this sense in BGP that there's this thing called an update that you send from the originating speaker that's advertising particular NLRI or reachability information, and it goes all the way to the other end of the network. There's no such thing as an update that goes through the network. Updates are peer-to-peer, -peer and that's it. They're torn apart at each BGP speaker, and then they're put back together by that BGP speaker to advertise to its peers. So this is kind of one of those things we tend to think of BGP more in ISIS or OSPF terms, where there's like this packet that's generated by the originating speaker and it's sent all the way through the network, and that's not true. Um, you actually split up the information into the NLRI and other things that you have in there, the attributes, what are called attributes. Um, that are carried along with the NLRI. So I think I can offer Russ just to, you know, to maybe help people understand why that is. You think about how BGP works. Um, when, a, when a BGP speaker learns multiple copies of the same route, it has to run best path and only advertises best path. Uh, once, it, once it locally runs best path, it only advertises its best route onward. Uh, that would not be possible if the local speaker didn't break open the update, run best path, and then assemble a new update to send out to its peers with whatever new policy information or AS path information that may uh, be in that update. Uh, so that might help understand why does, you know, or might help prove the point about why BGP opens up. Yeah why, yeah, why it's done that way. It's also an internal storage thing, but the primary thing originally, like Nick said, was that you're actually only advertising your best path, which means you carry the NLRI and the attributes of that NLRI to your speak to your peering speaker. You don't carry an actual packet of any type. Well, it is a packet, but it's a packet you generate locally. Right, and there's a scalability component to this as well. If we took every every update, you know, advertised by every router on the entire internet and just propagated that to every other router on the internet, there's a problem there, right? Mm -hmm. And so we get into update packing and some, you know, some some consistency and, and some, you know, optimizations for that, relaying that information. And so there's, that's a component to it as well. Yeah. So you're already into scaling on us here. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not meaning to jump ahead. I'm just saying there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. There is. Yeah. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So then you have address families. Nick, tell us about address families since we... Uh... Yeah, so the, the, the base, the most, without getting into all the nerd knobs about how address families work and capability exchange with the BGP open message, I feel like those are things that can be kind of discussed in a different uh, forum. But the general idea of address families is if we think about BGP as a general transport for a control plane, the address family determines what is it that we're transporting. Are we transporting IPv4? And then there might be sub-address families under that. Is it IPv4 unicast? Maybe it's multicast RPF fix up. Maybe it's flow spec. Um, it could be a number of different things and for a number of different address families. So that's the idea of the address family and the sub-address family is what are the capabilities that BGP has? You think about the classic uh, use of BGP is just unicast routing. We run v4 and then maybe v6, but then of course we have other things, uh, MPLS, VPNs, multicast fix up, um, BGP link state, uh, which is just 
basically opaque information that BGP can carry to support segment routing, traffic engineering, and other relatively new technologies whereby BGP is used for transport only and doesn't do any kind of local computation. So address families really just define what are the capabilities supported by BGP. So in other words, BGP carries everything. Yeah. Good, bad, good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter what what, yeah. what the actual yeah. thing is. It's, you yeah, define it's the thing. Crash yeah. into the internet, Jordan. Yeah, yes. Why can't we call it the U-Haul of the internet? <laughs> <laughs> no, whether I mean, we feel it on fire, U-Haul. But yeah. sorry, Nick. Go ahead. <laughs> I guess I, I, I can almost see what Russ is going to say now. Whether we should be doing that versus you know, are we doing that is kind of a different question. I think that, you know, kind of to Russ's comment, you know, the, I think he called it the stuff transport protocol or the junk transport protocol, because we use BGP for so many different things and, and whether, you know, why, we, why, or, why or why not we shouldn't do that isn't a question that we oftentimes consider. Right, and, and it's not really what we're addressing right in the show. We're talking yeah. about what it can and right. can't do. Sure. And I, I right. think the, the important part is that, you know, we think about BGP in, in the terms, or at least early on, I think when someone's learning about BGP, you think about it from a unicast routing perspective. We, we, we're just trying to learn routes and how to get there, and, and, and that's about it. Um, but the reality is that BGP goes much deeper. We use it for a lot of different things. I think we're going to touch on some of those you know, later on. Um, yeah. But it's, it, it's not just unicast routing. There's lots of things we do in BGP. BGP is just a framework for transmitting information across a network. Use, like you said, mm -hmm. just a control plane, distributed control plane. Right. So yeah. the so the AF the address family, which is often called AFI SAFI in the literature. If you're reading something about BGP, or you see, you see AFI SAFI, which is address form, uh, address family indicator or whatever, and sub address family indicator, uh, will give you. It, it's basically just an opaque LSA in OSPF terms at this point. You just carry whatever you want to in it, and uh, all sorts of things have been defined to do it. But that's essentially what an AF is or an AFI is. Um, the AF is the actual format and the AI is the AFI is like the specific TLV that's used to carry something. Okay. So there's so, one more term guys in there, autonomous system. So, I mean, this is a familiar term, right? Autonomous system. We see this in other routing, other routing protocols, but it's more important BGP. Why? So don't, all, don't all jump in at once. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so an autonomous system is basically just a collection. It, theor it theoretically started out as a collection of routers under a single administrative domain. That's really not true anymore. The, uh, the autonomous system is effectively now just a group of routers defined however you want to define it. In a data center fabric, you might use multiple autonomous systems on the same fabric, even though they're all under the same administrative domain. But originally it started with this idea that if I were a transit provider or an edge, uh, an edge customer or something like this and I connected to you, I would have one AS number and you'd have a different one. And that way we could tell who, whose administrative domain started and ended where. So that's the genesis of the uh, of the autonomous system number, but it's grown beyond that or become more of an abstract concept since then. So well, that's, but that's there's some important characteristics of of, of autonomous autonomous systems in the way that we peer. Oh, I'm sorry, the way that we neighbor. Sorry. So, but no, Just but like to work that in <laughs> at, at, at the foundational part of it, right? You know, if our autonomous system numbers are different. Um, we're going to be peering via eBGP, which has a, has a much different set of characteristics right. than if we are peering within the same autonomous system. And so, so it's a concept that's still critically important in the way that in understanding how those peering relationships work. I miss right. that neighbor relationships work. Um, but it's not just that. An autonomous system is supposed to look like a single policy object from the outside. 
That, uh, that's the basic concept of an autonomous system. Right. Anywhere right, right. you go outside that autonomous system, it should look consistent to every BGP speaker looking at that autonomous system. So that's really what it comes down to. You can have very, very variations within the AS over I, when you're running IBGP between speakers and stuff, and you can have various exit points and stuff like that. But from the outside, the AS should appear to have a consistent policy, edge to edge. I shouldn't see any inconsistencies in policy. That was kind of the original concept that we, that the BGP uh, people working on BGP were working with when this whole AF or AS concept came up. Yeah, right, and so I think let me uh, uh, go ahead, Nick. Example. I think that I think it might be valuable to provide a counterexample of. Uh, maybe I, I'll, I'll hesitate to use the word poorly designed because that's very subjective, but I'll say a non-compliant with what Russ has described uh, situation. So suppose I have an AS, um, this is something I'm doing for work right now. There's um, basically five connections in five different parts of the world from our giant AS to this other organization's giant AS. And from certain egress points, we're doing, you know, applying some BGP policy outbound to influence traffic inbound and specifically as path prepending, which we'll talk about a little more later. So I apply this attribute at connection one to make that link look undesirable. Uh, and maybe I do different prepends on the connections two, three, and four because I want five to be the best. Well, if five is supposed to be the best for all ingress traffic to my AS, but I find that some of the other links are being used based on different locations within the PRAS because maybe they're, they're doing things like uh, other adjustments or, or things that are regionally specific, then it doesn't look like one consistent policy to me. Not that it's a bad thing. That might be per their design. Maybe they're using local preference inbound to influence traffic outbound, and I simply don't know it and can't control it. Um, but I'm trying to show what would this inconsistency mean? We're not talking about like a broken peering session. We're talking about when we apply policy, we get inconsistent results depending on the construction of the intra-AS stuff. And that's generally, according to, according to what Russ is saying, which was the original view of the designers, something to be avoided. Right. Correct. All right. Let's move well, on to uh, Yvonne. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, as we talk about AS, and this is going to kind of move us into the next uh, topic of conversation, uh, especially in the data center, but, but with all of BGP, where you s configure your AS boundaries really affects where you can apply policy, um, yes. which I think is where we're going next with uh, IGP versus EBGP. Is that where we're headed, Phil? Well, we got next on our list forming neighbor relationships or peers. Um, but, you know, certainly however you want to slice it is fine. So why, why don't we do that? Let, let's go into how, how BGP forms neighbor relationships. Yeah, I'll talk, I'll talk briefly through that. I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's relatively straightforward, but there's a certain uh, level of genius in it, in my opinion, because one of the best, um, you know, there's probably a, a proverb out there that I don't know, but when you reuse things in an intelligent way, like using TCP as your layer four transport for this, for this protocol that we're designing, instead of developing something new, uh, that's generally a desirable thing. And uh, relying on, you know, you get TCP slow control, uh, uh, MTU discovery, reliable transport, all the kind of things that come with it without having to create new uh, protocols, you know, and at mm -hmm. the time TCP came with kind of built in MD5 options and a few other nice features that were pretty appropriate um, for, for a, a distributed control plan protocol like BGP. Um, because the peering sessions are one and one, uh, one, one, I guess I should say point to point, it's probably a better way to say that, the peering sessions point to point between two devices, um, you don't have things like uh, DIS or DR like you have in, in other protocols to manage some kind of election. It's not link state anyway, so that concept doesn't make sense, but there's nothing like it. Um, 
we talked earlier, I think Jordan had mentioned <clears throat> on the topic of, you know, taking an update and then replicating that update to thousands of peers, a perfect use case for this would be something like a route reflector in a carrier network, or maybe um, a hub and a DMVPN network with thousands of peers. If you get an update and you have to send the same update to all the peers, it would make sense to assemble the update once and then just send that same update to X number of peers rather than generate custom updates for everyone. This is known as update groups. Um, and what we have here, peer, peer groups is, at least in Cisco, the mechanism by which you would configure these things statically, but the update group is the actual mechanism that's responsible for that. The nice thing is that in a number of vendor implementations, this is kind of automatic and you don't really need to think about it, but it's certainly useful to, to be aware of this kind of scaling technique and the intelligence uh, baked into BGP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's other things that are done as well to make it scale well uh, with this type of using TCP. The actually most of your TCP stacks are implemented, or most of your BGP stacks, your implementations of BGP, are implemented in a way that they have hooks into TCP to tell TCP when to push data or when not to push data. Because TCP is just getting a stream; it doesn't know when an update ends. So there's actually hooks in BGP to say, "All right, push this or do that." And when you do MTU discovery in TCP, that information can be fed back into BGP in the way that it builds the uh, it builds the update packets. Another thing that's common is to do um, uh, update packing, which Jordan said something about before, which is basically when you have a single NLRI, it may have a set of attributes that sit with that particular NLRI, which you might call metrics or communities or other things like this. In BGP, what you do is, is you take all of, you, you actually form the update based on those attributes first, and then you tag NLRIs onto that information. So a single set of attributes may have 20, 30, 100 uh, NLRIs or reachability information pa uh, portions or TLV stuffed onto the end of it because what you're trying to do is you're trying to only send each group of attributes once to your peer because that saves you a lot of space in the way you build your packets. So there's a lot of stuff that's been done to uh, go through and make this a lot more efficient in the way you build peering because of this point-to-point -point peering idea and the use of TCP on top of, or BGP on top of TCP. Well, I mean, so we, we talk about the fact that it's TCP, and so a lot of the traditional routing protocols, right, they, 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 they form neighbor relationships based off of some sort of multicast or some sort of, you know, something that happens broadcast, something that happens on the same wire. Mm -hmm. but, right. but, but because of because the fact that it's TCP, there's some uniqueness to BGP in that we can form relationships over multiple hops. Right. Where, where, exactly. where that traditionally isn't possible. But there's some caveats to that, aren't there? Uh, if, if, you, if you do multi-hop or go over the top of another router <laughs> with, with the way that things get routed, okay, let's talk about that for a second because I think there's some interesting characteristics there. Yeah, I'll talk that one. So that's, uh, you know, when we, I, I think probably the best way to start with that is to think about when you've got, you know, a, a number of routers and you run a peering session, let's just say R1, R2, R3 in a line connected in series, you run a, a BGP session. Uh, choose your flavor and, uh, you know, internal or external matter for this example. You run a session between those two routers. Um, between R1 and R3? Yes, R1 and R3. Yep. That's right. Uh, you run a session between those two routers. You start to send traffic in from left to right from R1. R1 does a route lookup, has a BGP route to it uh, through R3. Now, there's one of two things that's going to happen at this point. Assuming that we had IGP reachability, let's just say it's IVGP, and we have IGP, OSPF, say, reachability between all three of these routers, between their uh, BGP next hops, then you're going to have a valid BGP route in R1 with a next hop. Uh, the BGP next hop is going to be R3's loopback. 
And then the device is going to say, well, it's my route for R3's loopback. It's R2. So that recursive routing lookup would occur on R1. Packet would get sent to R2 and be dropped there. The reason it would be dropped there is because R2 has no BGP route for whatever that destination was beyond R3. That's one problem that you would incur. Uh, incur. Another, I think, common misunderstanding would be, let's just pretend that uh, you configured that BGP session between R1 and R3, and you have no IGP in the network at all. Well, that BGP session won't even come up. So maybe you try to do some kind of hokey static routing just to make that come that BGP session come up, and that's fine. But if R1 doesn't have a route to the BGP next hop, um, and if the BGP next hop got changed somewhere, or maybe it's eBGP, and we, we did, you know, there's a couple options we have for how next hops get processed, you may not even install the route at all if the next hop is unreachable. So I think it, it bears saying a couple times is just because you can establish long range, I call them long range sessions, I, I made that term up, I think it's kind of self-evident, but just because you can establish these kind of long range multi-hop BGP sessions doesn't always necessarily mean you should, and there are a lot of, we'll say, consequences or preconditions that have to be met in order for that to be a functional design. The case I outlined earlier, you can fix that with uh, having BGP on R2. You can fix it with a variety of different tunneling protocols, both MPLS and IP-based, which we can talk through. Um, you can redistribute between BGP and IGP, which is generally not recommended. There's a lot of ways to work around that problem. I don't, the answer is going to be, uh, it depends, of course. But I think uh, it's- We found the consultant in the group. Yeah, you can't just, you can't, <laughs> How many balloons fit in a bag? Yeah, you can't, you can't just make these and expect that all the devices in the middle uh, can just be untouched. In some cases, that's true, but in most network, it's not. So, I think the- yeah. The important part right here is that if you, if you have a multi-hop BGP session, that middle router is just going to use its routing table. It doesn't know about BGP. And so you said it drops it, but that's assuming that the route isn't there. Well, let's, right. assume, let's assume that route has a default route that goes out to the internet. Well, if, if it doesn't have a route, for, it'll, it'll work in the sense that it will go to the internet. Right. But if, that's more, 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 if that wasn't right. where you were sending traffic, then... The tricky part, the tricky part is you got to have two default routes, one in each direction to make bi-directional traffic work. Right. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I've never seen that work. <laughs> the, the, the idea being, right, that you, you know, while multi-hop is absolutely a possibility, you have to be careful in the implementation. I mean, typically we see multi-hop when we're like peering to loopbacks. So we're not really going over the top of another router. We are just peering specifically. You know, uh, we're two interfaces in rather than one interface in using loopbacks, right? You, well, and they're. But but oh, I mean. I if you're going to do multi-hop over multiple routers, tunneling, sorry, Yvonne, I'm going to finish my thought. No, it's fine, it's fine. I yeah. thought you were done. Yeah, you, no, you I was just going to say there, there are circumstances, too, where you may have security requirements where you put a firewall between two BGP peers, um, which may not be the way you as a network engineer would design it. I see your cross <laughs> symbol, your X, not really a cross, it's an yeah, X yeah. there. Right. But some of us operate in worlds where we have security departments who dictate um, parts of the design and so you may have to do some kind of peering through a firewall mm -hmm. and they're just exactly like what Dick was saying you you have to have routes on that device in the middle even if you're multi-hopping across right I'm yeah, waiting well, for Russ to bring out the garlic and the steak there that was that's like, exactly that was like, right oh. <laughs> <laughs> so originally I mean originally if you think about the purpose of BGP it was to carry e, uh, external routes in an AS across the AS without dumping those routes into the IGP so it's right. almost like an overlay almost <gasps> yep <laughs> no, you're it's right. like a virtual overlay on top of your provider transit network. That's the way it was originally designed. We call it a control plane overlay. It's not an That's right. It's a control yeah. plane overlay. Okay. So you heard uh, it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> I highly doubt that. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, so uh, we've thrown around the terms IBGP and EBGP, internal and external, right? Um, and we talked about you know uh, how our policy edge uh, relates to our autonomous systems and that sort of thing. So let's dive into that a little bit more. What's the difference between IBGP and EBGP? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, so IBGP, of course, is the internal BGP peer. So that's the session between two peers in the same autonomous system. And the EBGP is the peering session between two peers in different autonomous systems. That's the right. okay. most basic fact to, to understand. Yeah. So they have I and E in front of them. That's right. Jordan. And the I and the E. <laughs> Here we go, Russ. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and most importantly, Russ, are you going to tell us what matters about the I and the E? They're lowercase. There we go. <laughs> so, um, which is, that's how it shows up in the notes. So we yeah, you, yeah. you can't just throw that out there. Why does that matter, Russ? <laughs> what, 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 what can you tell from I, I and E being lower? I mean, I've always spelled them that way, but that's just because I've always seen them spelled that way. So, 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 every, so every time you see somebody come up with some new technology to go with BGP, yeah. if they put the letters in front of BGP and it's uppercase, you know that person doesn't, isn't really familiar with BGP. They're like a not BGP person. Whereas if it's in lowercase, you know, they actually know how to follow the standards. You're not in the club. <laughs> I was gonna say, this is, this is like the secret BGP handshake. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and now everybody knows it, so it's not a secret. I know. Uh, We're all, all right. listeners on the show, so. <laughs> all right, so at its most basic level, eBGP is with uh, external peers, right? Outside of your autonomous system. And IBGP is within. So we got that down, Nick. What, what else do you got for us? <laughs> yeah, so I think at, at the most fundamental level, w without getting too much into the scaling details and the modifications to IBGP that we'll talk about soon, in terms of eBGP, we talked about policy edge and stuff like that. I, won't, I don't want to reiterate that too much. But one of the core things on uh, IBGP that I think is one of the harder things to learn, it was, it was hard for me to understand years ago when I was first learning about how the protocol operates, is that when a route is learned from IBGP, so if I'm a, you know, I have IBGP session to some ASBR, some autonomous system uh, boundary router that uh, learns EBGP routes from a peer, he sends them to me, I learn them as IBGP, I'm not allowed to send these IBGP routes to any other node. And the reason is because IBGP inherently was not designed with any kind of loop prevention mechanism. So for example, in eBGP, when BGP information moves between different autonomous systems, the AS path, the AS number, which is a, you know, a set of digits, is uh, added to the AS path. So along the way, you have a kind of a record of all the places that this route's been. And when it loops back around, it gets denied on ingress by the receiving BGP peer to ensure that a loop doesn't form. Well, IGP, I, within an AS, there is no AS path. Right, so right. Not by def, uh, I don't want to say by default, but initially there wasn't really a technique to uh, think through how that would work. So the logic was, well, IBGP speaker will just learn a route and hold on to it and not send it to anyone else. One of the amusing things that happened to solve this problem early on was the idea of a confederation, which was you would build a bunch of ASs within your network, mm -hmm. and then you would actually have this private AS path that would prevent loops within your network. And then when you got to your, your EBG, your real EBGP border, you'd strip that fake path out and just advertise just the true EBGP routes uh, path in the EBGP update or into the update to your EBGP peer. So that's actually one of those kind of amusing things. Uh, not many people use confederations anymore. They are still around here and there, but they're largely deprecated. Uh, by other things that have been used to scale the IBGP. 
And Nick said something there, and I think that some some clarity would probably be good, and that is that that there's not a, a AS path in IBGP, and I think that more specifically, there's not an incrementing AS path in IBGP. So if you look at a route that's an IBGP route learned from an IBGP peer, uh, you will see an AS path. But the problem is, is that since we haven't traversed a new AS, we're not adding a new one, mm-hmm. and so if we if we if we were looping internally, we wouldn't we wouldn't see that via the the, the EBGP. Uh, loop prevention mechanism, which is looking for our own AS. Right. If, if, the, if, the, if the route originated in a remote AS and you learned it from IBGP, that's correct. If you're right. Originated in your local AS, there is, the AS path is an empty string. Yep, absolutely. You're, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, an AS path, if the AS path existed, it's retained, for sure. No. Um, I, think, I think another uh, important thing to discuss, um, since we're talking about IBGP versus EBGP, talk just a little bit about peering and, and time to live. So for IBGP sessions, at least on a, any vendor equipment I've worked on, is the TTL on, that, you know, on the BGP communication is 255. So the logic is that within your own AS, um, you can peer between loopbacks and kind of a multi-hop. You know, there's no such thing as uh, an explicit IBGP multi-hop command or, or feature. It's just inherent with, the, with IBGP. It assumes that when you, when you identify your remote AS for that peer, it says this is an IBGP peer. I can send my uh, TCP SYN message with a TTL of 255 to try to reach that peer and form a session. When you specify an EBGP peer, at least in Cisco gear, I admit, I, I'm pretty sure it's true for a couple other large vendors as well. The TTL is one by default. So the peer is expected to be directly connected. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting difference though. Uh, interesting thing because typically you think about EBGP in most cases, you are directly connected to the peer. There's a misunderstanding commonly that I, I kind of want to talk through is if you have two routers, let's say they're running EBGP and they're peered on their physical interface that's connected on a, on a point-to-point link, Okay, great, no problems, that's easy. We run EBGP, we exchange EBGP routing, no issues. But suppose you wanna do that between our loopbacks. Why would you wanna do that? Well, suppose that maybe between these two routers, we have a lot of parallel links. So maybe four or eight different parallel links. And rather than run eight different BGP sessions, we can run one session between our loopbacks and have maybe a collection of static routes on those eight different links to reach the loopback. So effectively, you can almost think of static routing like IBGP in this case, or sorry, IGP, not IBGP. Think about using the static routing for next hop reachability as a substitute for IGP between ASs. Um, the big misconception, without getting too much into the details, the big misconception I want to get at is those two routers are still directly connected. You don't need to increment TTL to make that session work. Right? I mean, if I'm sending it from my loop back to yours, there's not another router that would decrement TTL. It really has to do with how does the specific vendor's implementation of the protocol handle eBGP peers that are not directly connected. Okay, so let me just use the Cisco example because I know it really well. If you run a run, a, a EBGP session between two routers and use their loopbacks, yes, you could turn on EBGP multi-hop and it will work. But that's generally unnecessary because all you need to do is disable the connected check, which says, if I'm trying to send a BGP, I'm trying to start an EBGP session to a far away destination, I don't know how far away that loopback is. I know I have a route for it, a static route maybe. I don't know how far it is. But if you say disable connected check, you're effectively saying, I'm guaranteeing that this remote destination, this EBGP loopback is one hop away. So leave the TTL as it is, but I'm going to allow you to look at non-connected routes in the routing table to form that session. So I wanted to say that because it's a huge misunderstanding. I've seen a lot of uh, very talented and respected engineers describe that incorrectly. You don't need to adjust your EBGP TTL to form a session between two routers that are connected. I think that's right. 
Because you, because you don't actually decrement the TTL when you're switching internally inside the router from, yes. say, Ethernet zero, slice zero, or fast E zero zero, or whatever it is, to loopback zero. There's actually no decrement in TTL there. So the right. packet's received at the physical interface, the TTL is decremented, and then no matter what happens at that point, the router is still going to receive it because it's for me. It's for one of my IP addresses. So at that point, it's just going to work. Right. And I think the, I think the dangerous thing is that if you turn on multi-hop, it also just works. So you have this kind of conflation that I solved the problem using this, therefore it's the right answer. Mm -hmm. not, right. Now it will work, um, but there are some, some trade-offs in that that we can discuss uh, yeah. probably more in the third show when we talk through BGP security. But one of the big things is around BGP session hijacking and other things like that, where using yeah. EBP multi-hop opens up a security vulnerability. All right, let's shift over to IBGP scaling techniques, route reflectors, confederations, that sort of thing. I think foundationally, there was something we didn't really cover about IBGP. I think we hinted at it. Okay. But I think it's important for this conversation. And that is, you know, we talked about the fact that an IBGP peer will not pass along a route it learns from another IBGP peer. Right. It's just going to stop there because it doesn't have a loop prevention mechanism. Right. And so the natural consequence of this is that if you want full reachability information within your IBGP network, every peer has to peer with every other peer. It has to create what's called a full bash. Right. And so that's great when you have two routers, three routers, maybe even four routers talking IBGP. When you have 100 and you add the 101st all of a sudden this becomes a big problem because now you don't just touch that one router, you touch the other hundred routers setting up peering relationship because we talked earlier, right? This is peer to peer configuration. <laughs> and so now if I have a full mesh with a hundred routers and I add one router, I have to touch 101 routers to make them all talk to each other yeah. uh, in, this, in this IBPG message. So that leads to some of these scaling techniques that, we, right. that we're going to talk about. Right. So the route reflectors are an interesting one because I think what they do is they add kind of like a fake or a, a substitute or a proxy mechanism for the AS path within an AS. So when a, when a, a route reflector is effectively a node that says, I can learn eBGP routes and I can also advertise them to other clients. So the, the rules on, you know, there's a kind of like a three by three table. I'm not going to recite the whole thing about if the route is learned from this kind of peer, here are the peers I can send it to. But the long story short is that the route reflector still plays by the rules of, uh, suppose I have a couple sessions, you know, you're a non-client and you're a non-client, I'm not gonna shuttle routes between the two of you because that's just regular IBGP. But if I learn routes from a client, I can send them to my non-clients and vice versa. If I learn eBGP routes, I can send them to all my peers. Um, if I learn routes from clients, I can send those to all my peers. So effectively there's kind of this table um, and really the only thing you can't do is non-client to non-client. Now, in order to prevent loops <laughs> things, yeah, there's really two kinds. I'm laughing because you said I'm not going to read the table, and then you just completely, completely listed every entry in the table <laughs> from the top of your head. Like, I mean, it was just, just like, like, bam, but he, bam, he bam. didn't read it. He I didn't, didn't read, read it. it. It was completely. No, I didn't read it. That's right. Your I, I, I was waiting for him to put it up on a piece of paper. I was going to say like whiteboard. Yeah, no, it was. I'm <laughs> sorry. There was great explanation, but yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I'm glad the quality was there. Um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Hold on. Yeah, I know. I completely yeah, so, messed you up. So, so, so the, the, the yeah, idea is that we need some way to prevent loops, though. And there's really two, two things I get introduced. And these are both BGP like attributes, you know, a piece of the NLRI. They're not communities. They can't be stripped. They can't be modified. Uh, one is the originator. So when you reflect a route, you need to identify who originated the route initially. And that's not you. That's the, the, the IBGP speaker who did. And you also add what's known as the cluster ID, which can be configured on each individual, each independent route reflector, which is looks like an IP address, but it's really just a string. Um, 
that says I, it, it was reflected through me. And anyone, any other route reflector that receives that is going to check, is my cluster ID in the cluster list? Sounds vaguely familiar to is my AS path in, or is my AS in the AS path? They're very similar concepts, and that's how you prevent endless route reflection within an AS. Um, also, the originator ID, the originator itself will not accept the prefix in which it is the originator. Why would it? So there's a couple different techniques to prevent that. Um, in general, uh, the, the nice thing about using those two different uh, loop prevention techniques for IBGP is that you could do really, really bad design. Like you could go in that, that you could go in that network of a hundred routers that's fully meshed and make everyone a route reflector for everything. Mm. It'll work. Okay. Now you wouldn't have a loop. You'd have a lot of other problems, but <laughs> yeah. no, the, the, the more, the more cluster like, IDs you have, the more routes you get at each particular BGP speaker in the IBGP mesh or in the mess uh, in the in the IBGP speakers. But the fewer you have, the less optimal things become, and the less routes you have to fall back on. So convergence takes longer. So there's this kind of whole thing there that you're getting at about the design paradigm or the design trade-off between uh, you know how you build your cluster IDs and that how that impacts your cluster list and who gets which routes and uh, you can do really bad things with that or really bad things in both directions i mean you could do you know 100 route reflects 100 route reflector clients with a single cluster id and everybody's receiving the same ebgp route so it takes a full ibgp convergence cycle to get anything to converge you know it just depends on how you do it it's kind of messy Right. I think, I, think, I think Russ touched on an important point about route reflectors and how they can potentially hide the topology because we talked about earlier about BGP receives an update, unpacks it, processes it, run best path, excuse me, determines what the best path is and ships out a new update to the rest of the peers who should, who should get that update. In uh, a route reflector, that's, that, that doesn't change. That's still true. So a route reflector might receive a ton of routes from clients. Maybe the route reflector is tied to two different ASBRs that have two diverse paths out of a network to a remote AS. Well, he's going to learn both of those routes. Let's, let's just pretend there's no policy applied. So each one of those ASBRs prefers their EBG path outbound. So we're not using local preference or anything. The route reflector will learn both paths, but only advertise one to the other side of the network, which means that everyone on the other side of the network is completely blind to the fact that there's two egress points. Now, if that primary uh, link fails for the egress point, IBGP will eventually converge and the world will be at peace. But that might be slow, it might take a while, and there's a number of different uh, kind of high-speed convergence techniques to, to solve that, which I think we'll probably discuss a little bit later. But that's the idea that one of the you know, more core trade-offs, you know, Russ talked about the number of route reflectors and the cluster ID, but even at its core level, if the route reflector hides topology information, then other routers in the network don't have a full view of what BGP looks like and could make suboptimal routing decisions based on that. Yeah, because you could be sitting right next door to a router, a particular route reflector client could be sitting one hop away from another route reflector client that is, you know, a great external route to a particular destination. But the route reflector could actually choose something that's five or six hop hops away from you because that's its best path to reach that destination. So you get into all these suboptimal situations with this, which we try to solve with things like uh, ad paths and optimal route reflection. And there's a lot of different ways, but typically what you end up doing you end up adding more routes from the route reflector out to those route reflector clients, just different ways of doing it so that you get the information back in. Hey, Nick, you know, this is a state optimization trade-off right here. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. You know, we talk about, you know, the route, the route reflectors will remove a lot. Obviously, they remove a lot of sessions. They consolidate state. So the route reflectors always have a good view of the, or, you know, they always have a, a relatively complete view of the network. 
um, but the remote devices at the edge or other IBGB speakers may not. So you've saved a lot of state on them at the expense at the expense of uh, having worse optimization or a suboptimal routing design. Yes. One of the one of the things that Russ talked about some what I would consider to be relatively advanced things like uh, ad paths and uh, optimal route reflection and for those in MPLS VPN environments can just use unique route distinguishers also solves the problem. But aside from all that, if we go back to the whole topic of this discussion is you could, for example, just do another IBGP session from that client that needs to go to that custom egress point to that custom egress point ASPR. Because then I get both information. I get one route direct from the path that I want, and then I get the route reflector's best path, which is my backup. It's not the one I want. So just by adding a couple peering sessions to the network here and there in kind of a tactical way, again, it, it could be viewed as haphazard and definitely band, definitely sounds like Band-Aid solution. I've done it in production as part of a permanent design. It works really well. It's simple. All you do is add a session. No policy, no route maps, no redistribution, no fancy features, no software upgrades. It's a very easy way um, to, to make that work. Now, when you have to do it 10,000 times, it's not so easy. But when you have some specific use case that you need, maybe the route reflector chooses the right path for 99% of your PEs, but you have a few that want to take a custom egress point, just make a, a kind of a, you know, one session from each PE to the proper ASPR, and then your, your problem may go away completely with no fancy features. Right. So that's think, kind of the power of BGP is that sometimes the simplest solution and just adding another session completely absolves the problem. And guess what? We don't have a full mesh. We don't have confederations. We didn't have to do anything terribly painful. Right. So, I mean, at the heart of it, right? Just because you're a route reflector client doesn't mean you can't do other direct peerings. Right. So, I mean, so, like, I, I, think, yeah. I think, you know, you think about this, you, th you know, every diagram you've ever seen of a route reflector when it comes to a training is this one central router that's connected to like 15 different routers that are only connected to the route reflector. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's not a requirement. Route reflector clients can connect to each other, then connect to whatever. It's just that route reflector is going to, you know, bounce routes from its clients to its other clients to let it, you know, uh, to yeah. let that route propagate. And so, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And the nice thing, I mean, the nice thing about the, the bouncing around is that, you know, any routes that you learned, uh, you know, you send them to that peer, he learns them from IBGP, but you're not route reflector clients of each other. So that it's not like that traffic gets fed back up to the route reflector. So fortunately you don't end up with a big blast of duplicate routes when you do that. It's actually right. pretty tight and well-contained because from that, from that ASBR's perspective, he's only got two IBGP peers. That's all he knows. Yeah. And the other thing about the route reflector, right, is, is that it's not really modifying the routes, right? So we, we did talk about the fact that it can, I mean, obviously it can make best, best path selections itself, but when, when the client receives the route from another client, uh, it, you know, the, the route reflector is not in path. It's not, you know, it, it, the, the, right. the advertisement. You don't, you don't change the next time. Right. The advertisement, the update that is received is the same yeah. one that the other, that the other client sent out. We don't change the next hop. That's why we still need reachability to all of the IBGP peers, right? Uh, theoretically. I know Nick is, I can see it spinning in his head. It's like, not really, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, for, for full reachability, the idea is, you know, anything I receive from a route reflector, uh, the next hop's gonna be the route reflector client that originated it. And so you're gonna need reachability directly to that route reflector client. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's normally, that's, that's normally what you would want to design. There are some cases specifically where um, well, let's say you're running a Cisco DMVPN environment, you're using IBGP in that environment, and you want to run DMVPN phase three. And without getting too much in the details on all this works, there might be a need for the route reflector to actually change the next hop for routes to get advertised down. Mm -hmm. There are some kind of corner cases where you want to forcibly change the next hop on route reflectors, but it's quite rare. Yeah. 
Russ, before you say that confederations are kind of deprecated, what, what are still some use cases that we'd see for them? And why, why are they being deprecated? Uh, the main use case that you run into for confederations today is mergers, mm-hmm. lending and mergers, that type of thing. Um, there are some other places where people will use confeder- confederations. If, for instance, you're running a large enterprise or a, a, you know, a large provider and you want to have regions that are controlled by sub sub uh, sub teams like yeah. you have a knock for the global core and then a knock for you know or a team that does just a particular region or something like that you can get into confederations there but the biggest problem with configura- confederations is that they tend to be they can end up being very messy uh tend to be you can do a lot of really bad design with confederations uh, if you go beyond just the idea of um you know what you're using it for uh, for a merger or something like that temporarily um, you end up in a lot of bad design in a lot of cases. And so people tend to avoid confederations now uh, for that reason. It, there's also some issues around policy and the way you carry communities through can be a bit messy. Internal communities can get leaked out accidentally and stuff like this that you get into. Because because there are EBGB borders between the confeds, between the confed ASs, you're actually, you have to use communities to carry your policy. So there, you're actually doing stuff with communities over EBGP borders, the thing you've got to remember to block those communities at the real EBGP border as it may be. So there's a lot of issues in that area as well. The, yeah, the, 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 the confederation extra, because you have this new state now, you know, what, what right. the discussion between confederation AS is called confed external, you know, some policy goes through, like if there's local preference or med, those things are, those things are retained through the whole confederation. Um, but things like next top processing follow the IBGP rules. So now you right. have to, you have to change everything you used to know about IBGP and EBGP to determine what is this nebulous state. Now, of course it's well-documented um, and, you know, it's not, it's not like it's not known. It's just more stuff to do. And now you've gone from a two-state kind of solution to a three-state one yeah. about what kind of peering session is it? How do I treat the next top? How does policy work? How do I filter communities? There's a whole other uh, set of considerations around that. So let's, uh, let's take our last five, six minutes and look at MPLS and BGP now, uh, which, you know, we kind of alluded to a couple times. So let's dive into that. Mostly pointless label switching. Oh boy, that's good. That's good. So I think I think there's a couple of things that we would want to talk about here. When we talk about when you think of MPLS, the first thing that comes to my mind is a BGP-free core. So if we have a core network with lots of BGP speakers in it, maybe we have them all tied into a route reflector. We're not using any kind of MPLS encapsulation at all, and we want to achieve that. We might say something like, "Well, if we just run MPLS in this network." And then we can start to remove these BGP sessions from our core nodes. We can achieve a BGP-free core. Now, something that I didn't understand when I first first learned about this was uh, I kind of jumped right into MPLS VPNs and said, yeah, I'm going to do all this multi-tenancy, put VPNs there, and do MPLS, and everything's great. And technically, that qualifies as a BGP-free core. But there's a simpler design that I'm, that I'm discussing now. All I'm discussing is step one, go on your network, turn on MPLS. Like, turn on LDPN. Right. Your, that's it. Just do that. Yeah. You're done. Well, step it. one, step yeah, one yeah. Cre- increase MTU. Step two, yeah, turn yeah, on MPLS. Right. <laughs> but, the, but the general idea is that the forwarding problem you were talking before about, Jordan, where the routers in the middle don't know where the routes are, goes away because you're actually encapsulating MPLS tunnel over the entire network edge to edge. Yeah, so, so there's no sharing. longer... 
We're sharing our MP our, our BGP routes as MPLS tags. That's exactly right. You're right, and then and then those are those are being propagated across the network. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the yeah. guys in the middle are propagating or forwarding traffic based on the MPLS tag. You know, so that's that's kind of a cool thing. Another really cool thing for me is what Nick was talking about, which is uh, which is traffic engineering in BGP is really kind of a cool thing. And now we have segment routing, which I think. Personally, I think is what MPLS traffic engineering should have been in the first place, because uh, segment routing is such a cool idea uh, in the way that it works with BGP. Um, so, you know, that those are things that you can that you get into with MPLS and BGP. So, Nick, I mean, you know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you actually carry the MPLS tag as an attribute, right? within uh, it's attached to an LRI. So when you want to forward traffic to that particular destination that's described by that LRI, you look up the tag as the forwarding uh, information. Yeah, if we're, if, we're, if we're doing MPLS VPN, something like that, that's absolutely true, whereby for every prefix learned inside the VPN, you would allocate a label for that or do some other kind of label aggregation, which we won't discuss. Um, and from the remote end of the network, when traffic comes in on ingress, you're going to start to push your MPLS label stack based on that final destination and then add more labels for transport. Um, that's definitely true. I just want to make sure that, uh, that I was clear initially when I said, if you just turn on MPLS in the transport on your network, and let's say you don't need VRFs, let's just say you're a transit provider and you don't want to run BGP in your core anymore and you just want to do, run BGP at the edge only, you don't need VRFs. Just turn on BGP everywhere and of course you have to make updates around QoS and MTU and that kind of stuff, but ignoring that, turn on MPLS in the core, and now you go back to my R1, R2, R3 problem, like Russ was saying, when the packet comes into R1, again, you have to have IGP and LDP together. Packet comes in on R1, R1 says, okay, I need to do a route lookup on this BGP route. The next hop is R3, do a route lookup on R3's loopback, how do I get there, R2, but I need when I send that traffic to R2, R2 will have, will have allocated a local label for it, advertised it to R1, that's how you encapsulate your traffic in MPLS to get across R2. So long story short, and I've worked this with a few customers. If you have issues with route deflection in your network, if you just turn on MPLS, the problem goes away. No VRFs, no VPNs, no VPN v4, none of that. Just turn on MPLS and your problems will literally go away with route deflection. Now, of course, you have other issues. Again, Jordan, MTU, uh, you have to deal with QoS. You only have uh, three bits to work with instead of six. There's other trade-offs, of course. New protocol like LDP to secure and manage and all that. But from a routing perspective, you can use IBGP you know, your regular route reflector, all your ASBRs run IBGP, just run MPLS in the core, and then start taking BGP off those routers, no VRFs needed. As mm -hmm. long as you allocate labels for all the BGP next tops and every router in the network agrees what those labels are. You can, you can also do what we used to do when we first started deploying BGP, which is just to redistribute BGP in the, into the IGP. <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> they almost don't want to respond. Yes, there, there are use cases for that. They're not common, <laughs> but there are use cases for that. We could spend the whole show talking about a design where I did that, even though it's against best practice. The law. Yeah, against the law, because, because there was a reason to it. But we weren't talking yeah. about external peers. We were talking let, about let me, our, our own peering relationships. Let, let me give you a real-life example of where that actually works really well. Um, and again, I'm not talking about full internet routing tables or transit no. networks, but suppose you're doing some kind of network where um, – I don't, I don't want to get too detailed, but in, a, in like a carrier supporting carrier designer, maybe you're a, a tier two ISP that's getting transport from a larger one. 
and you have relatively small pops and you're inside of a VPN that the carriers provided for you. And there's only maybe a couple hundred routes in BGP that you've used to peer with them. And maybe you have OSPF within each one of your regions or within each one of your regional pops. Doing redistribution at that edge router is totally appropriate because now you avoid having to run BGP unicast on all your provider edge routers and you can just get regular IGP external routes to reach across the network and still run BGP with your carrier supporting carrier uplink provider. Okay, I do that in real life, it works great. We're only talking about a couple hundred routes on modern hardware, they're all OSPF external routes, works fine. No. Now, of course, we talk about, you know, within the context of transit and full internet routing tables, it's definitely not appropriate, but yeah, I think- When a transit provider does that, you usually hear about it on the news the next day. Yeah. <laughs> because one of those stories. I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta say, I learned something here um, today, uh, specifically around MPLS, and that is, is that Russ believes it's the mostly pointly, pointless labels. <laughs> and Nick, Nick, think it's the magic protocol label service because it fixes everything. And so I just, I just like that ju juxtaposition. How can, really like, how can you like segment routing and not MPLS? Yeah. Oh no, I don't dislike MPLS. I know. I just, it's, it's, you know, when we first started talking about it in the, in the, in the IETF, that was the, that's what everybody called it. Yeah. Until, All right. it, took, so, until it took off. Clearly we're going to be doing an MPLS show. Uh, <laughs> until we're going to do a whole show on whether or not it's time. Yeah. Uh, that theory. <laughs> so, until then, though, guys, I do look forward to the um, uh, traffic engineering show, BGP traffic engineering, and our BGP security show. Looking forward to a lot of great conversations there. So before we end, though, I'd like to give our audience a little opportunity to hear where they can find you online. So, Nick, let's start with you, please. Yep. You can find me on Twitter at NickRusso42518 or my website, njrusmc.net. Great. And Russ. Russ is at rule11.tech is the place where I put everything pretty much, but you can also find me on LinkedIn. You don't, don't PM me on Twitter. I don't answer PM on Twitter for the most part. What's it's a PM? Me. You mean a DM? What? DM, yeah, DM yeah, whatever. DM. See, yeah. That's how much I know about Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, Jordan, my co-host Jordan and Yvonne, so let's start with you, Jordan. Where can folks find you? Uh, sure. I'm at BCJordo on Twitter. I blog at jordanmartin.net. Um, and I just want to put a little plug out there for some of our previous episodes. If you like are wondering why things are the way they are and all the things that we talked about today, we've done several history of networking shows on the history of BGP and the reason why it is. Great background information for this conversation. So if you haven't watched us yet, you should go watch those. All Thanks. Right. And Yvonne. Yeah, I'm Yvonne Sharp. You can find me on the blog at esharp.net or on Twitter at Sharp Network. Great. And I'm Phil Gervasi. You can find me at network underscore Phil, networkphil.com. Make sure that you check out our website, thenetworkcollective.com. Uh, hit the subscribe button. There's, uh, you can follow us on LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter, um, on Facebook. Uh, RSS feed available, all of that there for you. Until then, though, until next time, that is, I'll uh, see you. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.